Welcome to the podcast series Anders Utrecht, where scholars and community organizers discuss how grassroots initiatives offer sustainable alternatives to urban organization in the Utrecht region. Join the sustainable urban transformation and tune in to hear what we can do differently in Anders Utrecht. Hi everyone, you are listening to the seventh episode of this Anders Utrecht series on societal transition. We are at uh, Casco again doing this uh, recording uh, and we appreciate uh, Casco's support for providing this office space for recording. And as you may know from previous episode, there might be some other noise around, some birds chirping or the wind is blowing. Today, we have two guests from two different organizations who will discuss about social change, social transition, and what might these concepts might enhold and Perhaps they have even have some tips for us on how to get there. We are here today with Peter Hessel from Transiti Motor, the Utrecht quarter of this network. And we also have uh, Thomas Groot from Commons Network. And we also have our colleague Patricia Zanoni from Utrecht University School of Governance. Patricia is joining us uh, virtually today, uh, which is also uh, the first experiment for us. Uh, so far, so good. And today we will broadly talk about how network organizations and how organizing for change can contribute to sustainability transformation through which ways and how uh, we can achieve this. And with this, I would like to invite my guests to introduce themselves. Thomas. Hi. Nice, uh, nice to be here uh, in physically in Utrecht. My name is Thomas de Groot and I uh, work as a um, head of programs at a Commons Network in Amsterdam. We are a collaboratory for social and ecological transition and we connect ideas and people and we try to share new tactics and new economic models, new social models uh, with governments and NGOs and social movements in order to create a more just and caring future. Fantastic. And uh, Peter? I'm uh, Peter Hessel. Um, it's good to be here and talk about uh, transition. Uh, I'm connected to uh, the, the Transitions Motor, which is a national movement uh, who came forward from uh, the Drift Institute, which, which is connected to uh, the Erasmus University of uh, Rotterdam. They actually started this uh, during the, the first lockdown of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and, and there were a lot of people interested to exchange about transitions. But they did it temporarily. So uh, actually the transition motor is fading out now mm -hmm. and going over to other organizations. But the Utrecht region uh, is a very strong group, so we want to stay that's what we decided. So, so we're going to stay because this is a very big group of young, uh, not young, but uh, intrinsic motivated individuals. So in that way, it's a, more a movement than an organization. And I'm one of those individuals, so I don't have a particular job in that. Perfect. That, that explains a lot. And Patricia. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Patricia Zanoni, and I'm a scholar of organizations uh, at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, but also uh, at Hasselt University in Belgium. And in my research and teaching and all my activities in, in 
in my work, I'm very interested in, in organizations and how organizations can become more equal inside, but also can contribute to a more equal society. And in this sense, uh, non-capitalist organizations um, is a very, very important uh, part of my work, uh, very interesting places where we can learn how to organize the economy and society not around firms and markets, but in more just ways. As the audience may already note, that there is a real good common interest here in terms of how to organize society in a different way, how to move into a new phase or different ways. Uh, and with this, I think it boils down to some extent, how do we mean or what do we mean with the notion of change or transition? Uh, it's a very loaded uh, term, and I wonder how you define this transition or social change from your own perspective and also concerning the role of your organization. Shall we begin with uh, Peter? The, the way we interpreted this is like we see parts of the system failing out at this moment. It's, it's, it's not good enough. The, the, so to guide that and let it fade out in a way that it's acceptable for everyone and and look at the new initiatives that are created to support the um, environmental questions the social questions and everything so and actually on on the point where they cross that's where we are important to to work together to to make it as easy as possible the 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 change the the transition and that's how we look at transition at the What, what can you add to this, Thomas, from your own perspective? I think it's quite a difficult question. Um, maybe I should start by saying uh, we are very aware, and I think we all should be aware, that we have no time left to transition entirely because this planet is slowly but rapidly becoming unlivable. So uh, that is like uh, casting a shadow over all other transitions as far as we're concerned. Um, but overall, we look at transition from a very political uh, perspective. So we work to transition, to, to re-envision how we look at families and relationships and uh, how we build neighborhoods and how we organize cities and how we um, design the governance of data and how we um, rethink work and labor and how we can disband patriarchy and uh, abolish all hierarchies and reinvent democracy and uh, so at Commons Network we said let's start with the economy but all those other things follow through logically. This is quite a broad and very assertive agenda which of course we would enjoy and join but um, it, it, it sounds quite complex and quite uh, broad. Um, Patricia, how, how do you see the role of these organizations in terms of transition or social change and given the complexity of the issue we have on our hands? Well, I think You know, uh, Peter and Thomas together are kind of uh, coming from the uh, civil society, moving and seeing more and more the failure, I would say, of uh, classical institutions at the local level, but even national, international level, actually to organize society. And of course, in our societies, the economy has always a very major role, <laughs> but the economy and society as a whole in ways that are sustainable eh, from the point of view of the environment, but also socially in terms of uh, 
you know, m making sure that everybody's on board and stays on board and that uh, uh, large inequalities are kept out of our systems. And I think the awareness of this failure has been mounting in the last uh, decade, certainly after the crisis of uh, 2008, uh, which was global, certainly due to the uh, climate question, which is really in our face right now. But I, I'm afraid we could uh, have a long list of uh, examples of failure. At the same time, I think it's really a historical moment in which uh, civil society is really trying to organize bottom up to uh, envision uh, new ways of doing things. And I'm very happy to be uh, with you if virtually <laughs> around the table to discuss, because uh, this is really what I get energy out of as a scholar. I'm listening to Peter and Patricia and also myself. I, I noticed that we, the three of us, look at transition from a very systemic uh, perspective. I realize every day in my work that most people don't because people are busy with their lives and, and looking at systems is something you need a certain amount of privilege in order to have that headspace to do that. So I'm wondering how do you, as, as Anders Utrecht, or you in your work, or, or Belle, uh, how do you look at transition as well? We see this as a problem of structural organization. And you have to in, intervene into the structural dynamics through the ways you have or the available tools you have. And we see Anders Utrecht as a way to mobilize collectively and also to move towards a common agenda. Of course, it's not easy, and this is also what we try to do with these kind of podcast recordings, that how these different groups of organizations can come together while they may have some similar or common objectives and how this can, that, that, that these, these objectives can be aligned further. And as academics, whether we can contribute to that or not, that these are the kind of questions we deal with. But this is a very fair question, and I think like Transiti Motor like, or like Casco, where we do our recording here, there are these multiple attempts, and I guess it's a matter of bringing together these forces and also the impact together. And it's a long-term process, given although, although the, the, the issue is so urgent, so pressing, I guess uh, this is a political and moral responsibility that we have to move forward or we have to take on. That's, that's how I see it personally, and also I believe uh, this might be shared by my colleagues. Yes, Patricia? I think organizationally, you, you really point to the right issue, right? How do, how do you see and then this level of uh, analysis, or we would say as scholars, but these levels you have, you know, you have these organizations, uh, you have uh, alliances of organizations, but at the uh, bottom you have individuals who make a choice about joining, about what they consume, uh, where they put their time into. Um, and at the higher level, I would say, you have the relationship with the existing institutions. And also as a movement, I think a very uh, important question is, you know, how do you create a shared sense of a direction? Even though you don't want to impose a direction, you do need to uh, continuously work towards a shared direction because otherwise, uh, as you might understand, it, it's very hard to put to put down a, a collective project without having a sense of where you want to go. So uh, quite complex, but uh, many times in our society, um, you know, the individuals is uh, really called to do something, right? And I think what we have in common here, uh, all of us around the table, is that we look at this from a more collective perspective, understanding that the individual is, of course, always 
the center of the collective and needs to be in the collective, otherwise you don't have anything. I, I also want to add that it's a matter of, it might be a bit technical, it might be a jargon uh, used, use, but I believe that we need to build a kind of counter-hegemony. And this, this requires a kind of alignment and kind of building alliances through different groups. We may not agree on everything, but I think there might be a base of power through people or through collectives, through organizations and through networks. And that's the way where we can also learn from each other, but also can build an agenda together, despite perhaps some conflicts, some challenges. But I think that should be the way. And I agree with Patricia, just uh, to finalize from my point of view, um, the, the, the current era is based on this neoliberal ethos that you can do it. You can do it as an individual. You can do it by yourself. Regardless of what is given to you, what's provided to you, you are capable of doing this, the, the change or as a consumer, as a student. But we need more of this. I think that's a, that we should break down this neoliberal uh, ethos upon us that as we, we, individuals, yes, as, as Patricia mentioned, but we need to come together, not also as individuals, but also as organizations. And I think that's very cr critical. What I l always like to express is like, we have to behave as better ancestors. And that's actually the future. And then you involve everyone. Normally, people say, I do it for my children, but that you rule out a lot of people. And if you say, we have to be good ancestors, you include everyone, and that's worth to work on together. So that's actually trying to get a new mindset to all individuals, and that is a goal for all of us, all of us I think. So that's why we have to connect with each other and not compete with each other as, as new organizations in new economy and new society. No, I, I was uh, inspired by what uh, what you said about mobilization. Uh, it's something that we look at. We are civil society organizations, as Patricia pointed out. It's always hard to identify where you stop organizing a civil society and start mobilizing with the masses, let's say. But it's 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 an important question. And we did a research about social secu security uh, last year, and one of the first sentences in that report was. A lot of these problems that are also now in social security um, are framed by neoliberal politicians as individual problems. Like you, you can't find a job, it's your problem. But most of these problems are collective problems with collective solutions. Yeah, exactly. And just on top of this discussion, I think it's really important to now uh, focus on your organizations and how you intend to do the change or do the mobilization or how you can build on the research, how you can come together with other members of Transitive Motor or, you know, how, how you do these things and what kind of values, principles you are driving by. Peter? Uh, within the Transition Motor, there has been different groups uh, nationally working. Uh, one of those groups worked on Citizens' Assembly as an extra way of uh, new democracy and actually, by picking our first topic, the climate, uh, uh, we connected to different organizations. Uh, for example, Extinction Rebellion connected to us and the C1000 organization connected to that. That's actually being a motor. You make the connection bigger uh, uh, with each other. Mm -hmm. So it get, you, you have more effect in the end. So I think that's a good example how, how uh, you, you can work together. Uh, with, with different organizations, and that's always uh, actually at the 
Utrecht re region, we have a very diverse group of about 60 people from all kinds of organizations, but also independent professionals, uh, people who work actually with citizens in, in the suburbs, but also people who work for the government. That gives it extra worth uh, uh, because you have a broad view of how things work and how things can be changed. So as far as I understand that you have, have uh, some other groups, some organizations that come into come under Transiti Motor and then exchange ideas or develop projects. Yeah. And who is your target group then? You, you have, have you reached out people? Actually, our target is a, a, a good life, an equal life for everyone in the Utrecht region on the long term. That's actually our, our basic view why we're all there. We're not all experts on all topics, so, so we have to inform each other. So that's that's what we spend a lot of time uh, with, informing each other on, on specific topics like circular economy, um, new energy, um, well, all, all kinds of topics. Actually, you, you learn, you're a learning network as well. You learn from each other and that's that's a good way to work together and actually that gives a real connection to each other. And I assume that you meet... Uh, regularly or you meet time to time to make these discussions and also to organize events we have every every monday afternoon we have a have an online meeting okay and how does it work for you uh, thomas and also for the commons network the value thing is is uh, well it's personal for us we we are political people uh, driven by also personal uh, issues and, and and passions and vendettas and things that we live through at least once a year, we try to also have a discussion about what, what's hurting you and what's driving you and turn that into um, values for the organization, such as uh, caring, uh, justice, equity, but also uh, a sets of beliefs that drive us. Uh, something like um, a transition has to be intersectional or it's not really a transition, or um, the nation state needs to be abolished, or things like that, beliefs that, can, uh, that we can vocalize in order to... Uh, Big questions. Yeah, but it's important to know what you're fighting for, so uh, also as a team, right? right? And then how we organize that is that we uh, turn that into... Uh, well, we have uh, two main working areas. One is more researching, uh, funded by, uh, let's say, funders and subsidies, doing real, almost academic research uh, into policy, but also into new domains, like degrowth has been one of our focus areas for the past few years. Uh, and the other is more um, getting our hands dirty and working with governments and universities and uh, non-profits and other civil society organizations and really advising them and offering them con uh, concrete tools and things to work with. Great. And um, I assume that, that your target group in that sense is at one point those uh, institutions that you would like to intervene into the practice of the institutions, hoping that yeah. they will collaborate with you. And meanwhile, you are also producing knowledge for different yeah. wider group of society. Yeah, it's hard to, um, we have uh, people in politics, uh, local politics, national politics, civil servants, journalists, uh, also uh, activists, part of social movements, they pay attention to what we say and we know that's our, um, our primary target audience, but we, we want to move from the journalists also to the readers of those newspapers and it's, it's, it's a continuous struggle to come up with ways to... Uh, through communication and campaigns to reach a wider audience. And I wonder, as an organizational scholar, Patricia may have some specific questions, perhaps for uh, Peter or for Thomas. Yeah, I think what Peter is uh, 
telling about uh, so this uh, linking research with uh, mobilization with uh, institutions is a really a quite ambition ambitious uh, way of working and very interesting i think and very different uh, if you compare it to uh, how politics was done maybe 20 or 30 years ago and can you say a little bit more about how uh, you started out with this kind of model or did it emerge organically or also you have this idea of of commons uh, which is uh, yeah which is your trademark right i mean this notion how, how did did it start and how did you come to work like this i find it very exciting as a <laughs> as a way of working? Well, actually, it started with quite a small group of uh, academic professionals from, from Drift who in, informed their own network that they were setting this up and asked people to join in, and, and that's where it started. And then and I think it's also because of people being closed in because of the, the lockdowns that there was more interest uh, generally to, co to connect to people who are involved in the same questions that you are in life. And, and actually, these people started connecting and it started to become its own identity uh, in that. So it started off uh, with academics, but it, it grew out to be much bi bigger. And essentially, what you see is that you, after one year, there always uh, is some kind of problem in a network. After a year, there's a group of people who want to get more organized, more institutionalized, and, and there's also a group of people who want to stay free and think free. So that, that's always... The tension, isn't it? That's, that's what we actually uh, happened after uh, about a year with, with the national transition motor as well. So what you're saying is that the, the challenge for you now is how to sustain the mobilization that kind of spontaneously emerged, uh, you know, in the wake of COVID-19. And uh, are you looking for like the organizational uh, format to, to be able to grow and, and to have an impact? Or what, what would you say is your challenge? Yes, well, that is our challenge, and actually, we're we're working on that. As uh, with the sixty people, we are wondering, and we and next Monday, uh, it's the first time we start after the summer holidays, and this is actually the topic: who do we want to be together, and how open will we be? Because if you institutionalize, then you close up a bit as well. So, how do you uh, make sure that you're you stay inclusive and get more inclusive because that's always a, a thing to have an eye for. To how inclusive are we? Yeah. So, Thomas, your organization has a quite different uh, kind of model, right? Where you combine research with uh, works in the, with the institutions, but also mobilization of citizens. So, a little bit also what Transissimo wants to do. You're more explicitly political, I think. If I listen to both organizations, can you? Perhaps share your experience uh, about, you know, how you came to give shape to the organization in this way. Because I think as an organizational scholar, I think it's one of the challenges, right? Right, Peter uh, is telling us for the Transition Monitor. Yeah, good question. We, um, as you said earlier, we were inspired by the Commons. But that's why we're called Commons Network. 
Um, but we started out um, mostly uh, as a think tank, uh, lobbying on behalf of the, the, the copyright and intellectual um, property uh, movements, uh, building on the, the concept of knowledge as commons. So we were really uh, policy wonks uh, with an office in Brussels. And, but we always sit, uh, noticed that we are positioned uniquely by how we are uh, as a team and how we feel about the world to be between academics and activists and policymakers. So in between those three, we feel like we're, we're right there. So we try to stay in touch with uh, social movements and uh, academics and uh, politicians as well. Uh, by uh, talking to think tanks of political parties and working with Extinction Rebellion, but also engaging with you guys in academia. And, and that's something that we continuously try to do. And then organically, we grew from just focusing on digital commons and knowledge as commons into the, the city as a commons, urban commons, and food as a commons, etc., etc., because the, the framework of commons and intellectual tradition of commons offers a lot of... Uh, um, building blocks for that as well. So it, it, that kind of grew organically. And would you say that this uh, kind of role as a broker almost between different uh, constituencies, right? Would you say that you have uh, filled that position because of the specific profile of the people that started it all out or are there any boundary conditions? Good questions, difficult questions. <laughs> well, I think it happened because we had the urge to be an organization that fulfilled this bridge function on behalf of the commons movement. Not to say we represent all of you and we are your voice, of course, but to say we were looking at this emerging commons movement, which was, I remind you, super energetic five or ten years ago because also because of the work of Eleanor Ostrom, but also the, the emerging of the internet itself, and then you had... Um, uh, Occupy and of course the, the the municipalist wave in 2014 in Spain. So there was a lot of happening also in the commons field. It was very um, um, natural for us to look at that and say, hey, what's needed now is is an organization that stands between this and academ academia and policy. I, I I also wonder about this brokerage role. I was also going to ask that how you whether it's a kind of think tank role or because you're um, operating at different levels that you are producing some knowledge, you are also doing some uh, advising, yeah. and also you are issuing some probably declarations or some statements. Yeah. So you are actually working with multiple constituencies at the same time. Yeah, that's why I jumped Th on your uh, remark about uh, theories of change. It's it's something that we that we struggle with, but also we want to continue struggling with it. Uh, on the one hand, it's it's nice that we produce reports, well-researched, difficult 50-page uh, reports that always end up in drawers somewhere in an office in The Hague or whatever. But uh, on the other hand, we also want to really affect change and mobilize and work with movements and help out those movements. And then there's the, the question of, for instance, uh, municipalities who have such a great skill for actual change and, and pilots and experiments and cities can be real vectors of change. So we have to build concrete tools and, and strategies and tactics for them to implement. So yeah, it's we have to be all the everywhere all the time. This is amazing stuff because we also have more or less the same problem as academics that we write all these nice articles and sometimes we try to even also write you know working papers, policy papers etc but most of the time also the these uh, research or these uh, ideas may not really reach out to relevant actors and 
with this, I also want to link the discussion with Anders Utrecht that that's also what we intend to overcome uh, with Anders Utrecht, that we want to reach out to these different groups of activists or organizations who are concerned about social change, who are concerned about sustainability transformation so that we can work together. And I wonder how you, more or less, it's actually explicit and clear, but I also want to bring this discussion to Anders Utrecht to, to some extent and um, to hear your uh, perspective. There are similar organizations and how you see yourself as Anders, as different uh, from other change organizations or other organizations concerned about transition? Maybe, maybe some improvisation here about uh, your relation to Anders Utrecht. Peter? Our role in the Utrecht area was, was new, but there was not a real network exactly like it. So it was all new to us. It worked very well, and we really got also things changed in the end, like uh, we're talking to the local government now about ideas about uh, a citizens' assembly for, for Utrecht City. So, so, so that's actually a, a step forward, and we're very happy with that. And we got involved in uh, the participation of uh, to, together with the politicians about what would be the new way of participations for for our citizens in Utrecht. So actually, we get involved in in a, in, a, in a lot of things that are uh, politically going on, but 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 also what's going on in the in all the suburbs. So, so you go both ways, and and I think that that's unique, and 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 that works out really well. When I read this question in the what you sent us. Uh in as preparation, I, I immediately thought I don't like when organizations in let's say the the social part ask themselves how are we unique? How are what's our USP? I think it's quite a capitalist approach to um, organizations. But having said that, uh, I think we all try to be unique in our own ways. Uh, and and for Commons Network, I don't know if we are unders than everyone else, but we try to do things differently from what we see around us. Not necessarily civil society, but but in in the organizations that we work with or that we end up being in the same room with. So we are very horizontally organized, uh, not just in the way we make decisions, but also in the way we divide tasks. And we try to be uh, nourish, nourishing of, of our colleagues in other projects that they have, other hobbies, other struggles that they go through and encourage that as well. I want to carry the conversation towards more kind of the notion of transition because in both both of your organizations are concerned about transition at a social level and also ecological level. How do you see this connection? How does it work out and what do you do for this? Yeah, for us that's that's the most important thing. Any social transition has to be economical and ecological at the same time. One of our... Um, things that we always uh, emphasize is that, for instance, political participation or democratic participation uh, can only happen once you have democratized the economy. Otherwise, it's just uh, annoying to people. Uh, if you look at uh, how neighborhoods are organized, it's weird that uh, some politicians ask the disenfranchised neighborhoods, for instance, to go through an energy transition and, and telling them to have, they have to stop using gas in their kitchens or in their heating systems without discussing the fact that they have lead coming through their taps, for instance, or that they, their houses are full of mold in the roof, or that their, mm -hmm. their roofs are leaking. A any ecological transition has to be social, otherwise it's just not political. 
that's quite a statement, isn't it? Uh, can you say again? Every every ec- ecological transition should be social because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be political. Wow. Yeah, it's about power, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and if if someone tries to convince you that it's not about power, then they're lying to you. Yeah. And with this, I look at actually Patricia about this social and ecological transition or transformation, which, and we can add perhaps the economic transition as there, which Patricia is thinking about. Yeah, of course. I I think this resonates a lot with me, right? How I uh, do research on the transition, I actually... uh, don't really use the term transition because then you would have like a fixed point you start from. And a, but I, I fully, uh, fully engage with the uh, holistic approach to an evolution, a change, or maybe some somebody would say a revolution. <laughs> it's not much in in fashion anymore, but an evolution towards something that looks very different from what we have been building since I would say uh, World War II, basically. Uh, and you have a couple of, of milestones in this evolution, but I think there is today, paradoxically, a quite widespread uh, disappointment in how institutions operate, and we lack uh, an explicitly political language to talk about our discontent, but also to envision an alternative. Uh, and how to get there, eh, the transition. And I think so, it, it's a bit refreshing, I think, for me to hear that there is a movement uh, very close to uh, civil society, which dares to re-adopt a, an explicitly political language. I think uh, you, are, you are feeling here a need uh, really to reappropriate an explicitly political project, which uh, party political parties are increasingly unable to do <laughs> uh, because they are implicated in the institutions and the very institutions are at question, are interrogated uh, by citizens right now. On the other hand, I also see the the, the necessity of what Transissimotor is doing, which is, I think, uh, if I read between the lines a little bit, another type of, even as political project, maybe with a, a little bit less of a political radical language and vocabulary, but very radical in the modalities of doing politics by taking up a a very broad movement of uh, citizens and uh, a very heterogeneous and and, uh, really grassroots uh, kind of energy and and collectives and engaging with existing institutions as uh, collectives of citizens. And I think this is another role as, as necessary, because, of course, at the end of the day, you need people to, to engage and you need a lot of people to engage. And if, if the, uh, the general discourse is very depoliticized, it's very hard for individuals today to make the step towards organizations, I would say most, most citizens, to make an immediate step to uh, to join organizations where the language is so explicitly political, right? 
So this is necessary, but also it frightens most people. Yeah, there's a there's a fine line right there. What kind of language you will use and how you will mobilize people with with some specific concerns or with a kind of broader political agenda. And I think that's probably the difference we note here between the Commons Network and with Transiti Motor. Despite Transiti Motor is explicitly a kind of political agenda in the end, but the way you organize, the way you bring people, do not build on these kind of language, right, Peter? Would you like to add on this? That's actually true. And for everyone, for every individual connected to the transition motor, it's also about the question in which bubbles I live as a person and, and do I have a good view of what's going around? So, so And actually, all those people together, they bring the whole packet. So there's always someone who can give another point of view. And to involve uh, citizens is actually quite hard in in the neighborhood where i lived in january we took over the 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 children's playground uh, uh, from one of the institutes and as uh, citizens we run it ourselves at this moment it's actually a quite uh, a poor neighborhood so if i try to gi- give over a message to think about the environment and what you buy what you eat and everything that's a total different way to approach that then then uh, uh, this a, a lot of the professional institutions are are running their their programs at this moment because these people are busy getting bread on on uh, every day yeah. and and they're not really interested in if somebody something is has too much plastic in it or, or whatever and so, so the approach is 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 a total different way and and that's actually where we all have to think about how are we going today to take those steps because my belief is uh, if if we want to evolve uh, in a good way we have to involve in a good way and not think if 15% uh, is behind us then then we, we we can change everything because i don't think that's true because a lot of people are disappointed in institutions and government at at, at this moment i think this is crucial what we're talking about now um it's important to distinguish so language doesn't have to be depoliticized in order to reach a large audience in order to really touch people so i think there's a, a misunderstanding in at least in dutch political practice right now that uh, uh, civil servants feel like no we should depoliticize problems before we present them to the people otherwise uh, they will not understand it but the people understand politics and power what they don't understand is difficult words maybe so and i think um so i agree with you but i also think that we need to be aware that in taking away difficult words we take away the power analysis and i think um, um over the last year we've worked with an organization in uh, amsterdam north um for people who don't know Amsterdam, let's call it a disenfranchised neighborhood. Um, and that organization is called Defend the North, or Verdedig North in Dutch. Mm-hmm. And they are showing us, and they're showing the country, that you can definitely be a popular movement and be explicitly political, while still uh, reframing from refraining from being very theoretical. And they also taught us that a lot, because we were working with them, and I was talking about municipalism, and they were like, Stop using these words. No one, they, the words don't make sense if you don't know what they mean. 
Um, so it's, uh, I think there's a fine line there between depoliticizing language and... Um, so what I was trying uh, to say when I look at uh, the civil society movements that you have um, a multiplicity of vocabularies to mobilize and organize uh, civil society, I would say, uh, you know, all of them are inherently political in the sense that when the ambition is a transition, you are political, you're dealing with power, you're dealing with inequality, you're dealing with sustainability and the future of society. So in that sense, they're all political, right? Uh, but some uh, have a much more explicitly classical, I would say, political uh, vocabulary that they dare to use. And I do think there is a, there are certain uh, constituencies which are very fine with that. If you see now the all the movements for Black Lives Matter, for example, they are extremely political in a very explicit way and in a very classical way, if you will. And other movements rather organized towards, you know, through a vocabulary that is uh, more indirectly or that speaks more about life, that envisions other ways of living, very political act in itself, but not necessarily you know, with the metaphors and the words uh, that we have been using to do politics uh, in the past. And I think that these, these um, differences and heterogeneity is actually very fruitful because then you reach also people with different sensitivities that are moved in different ways and will contribute also probably through different organizations and, you know, much more building hands-on something or mobilizing in a very classical political way or engaging with institutions in a more confrontational way or more pushing in through you know meetings and participations i guess we need organizationally i would say we really need all of these resources and strategies and we also need to kind of think about how they can coalesce and and come together i would say at critical junctures when you know really uh, steps need to be taken to move forward. So heterogeneity, but also, and that's a, a very organizational kind of a problem. When do you, you know, when you do you force closure and a block? And when do you let people just, you know, build, build in process? And, you know, how do you do that in a way that everybody feels comfortable with it? This is a very essential uh, problem of organizing, that to what extent you will be horizontal, to what extent you will be vertical, to what extent you will institutionalize, to what extent you will keep people autonomy so that the new creative ideas will come through and then will be experimented or tested through the events or through the engagements with uh, different uh, constituencies. And with this, I also wonder, you, we were talking about institutions and alliances and other kind of engagements. And I wonder uh, for both uh, Transiti Motor and the Commons Network, how do you see your relation, particularly with different institutions? This might be the even the, at the EU level or at um, the national level, uh, fed, uh, uh, maybe, maybe at the regional level. How do you see your your relation with the institutions? Thomas, would you like to begin? Yeah, so um, we used to always present ourselves as a think tank uh, funded for 100% by philanthropical uh, funders, like Open Society Foundations. And that allowed us to always be this uh, clever but annoying advocate in circles of power in Brussels, for instance. Uh, because we had a report in our bag that we could say, this is what we're lobbying for, you need to change this law or this policy, very detailed. 
But now we are moving also to a model where part of our funding comes from, um, for instance, municipalities that fund us that for work that we do in a consulting fashion, which seems uh, like nothing, but for us that means a lot because that kind of feels like part of our independence goes away because we're now being paid by the same institutions of power that we want to um, criticize and, and, and change. At the same time, it allows us to be at the table. And uh, so it's, uh, I see it going well, but it's, it's definitely interesting. How do we relate to institutions that on the one hand we criticize, but we also want to work with them and be at their table? This is exactly what we are just before Peter talks. Uh, this is exactly where we are at our research group that we are currently focusing on this, how, how grassroots or how civic society organizations can be embedded into institutions while they are trying to transform these institutions, which might be official or, or established institutions like the governing institutions, uh, like, the, the, like the municipality, like the national government, also you know, the established routines of the society. Peter, how do you see this large problem, your, your relation with the institutions? Actually, uh, 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 quite some individuals from institutions are, are in our network or in our movement. Actually, they are able to work from within because they believe in uh, the fact that we need uh, certain transitions for the long term, for the well-being of everyone. So they are connected to our network, but they take it within our own organization. So actually, for us, it's very interesting to even broaden the group more to more institutions. Mm -hmm. Even if we level or don't level, it, it, it's about the individuals who believe in, in the transitions. So if you can capture them, then you capture the institutes as well. In and a way. are they capable of also doing some changes within their own institutions? Uh, yeah, but it's always small steps. Yeah. Th that's how transitions work. So it's always in small steps. So you re really have to stay clear about that uh, uh, because some people are in a too big hurry to, to get somewhere and then sometimes you, you break your relationship. You really have to think about that. Another fine line. Can I, if I just jump on this? Uh, I agree a, a lot with what you're saying. And I think for this is a lesson for a lot of civil society organizations. You have to have concrete things that you can offer to, for instance, municipalities or ministries or uh, other organizations that they can start working with, like models or tools or insights. But a lot of the role that we perform is also in changing discourses and changing narratives and offering different visions and pulling on Overton windows and improving debates and really reaching people on a much more narrative level. Uh, and that's something that you, it's hard to um, quantify that or, or it's hard to fund it even, but it's crucial for us to, to have a podium on which we can communicate and through that really inspire individual people in organizations as well. I think it's very interesting and very relevant what you say, and, and we see this in our research. On the one hand, you have individuals that act within the existing settings from their own role and from where they sit in those settings, and yeah, sometimes also with limited amount of uh, decision-making power or in bigger groups. Uh, but So that's, that's one part of how you transform. But in order for them to be able to open up the agenda towards something that is not yet there, you need actually boundary conditions, uh, conditions of possibility for them to act. 
And these conditions of possibilities are often, uh, to a certain extent, uh, it's about language and how do you narrate a problem. So we all see the problem. But is uh, how do you talk about it? And in the talk and in the discourse, uh, we call it, uh, you present it as an individual problem that therefore needs to be solved by an individual, or you uh, present it as a systemic problem or a neighborhood problem, and then you come up with very different solutions uh, depending on how you represent and talk about the problem, right? So I think the, the, the work about reconstituting what we perceive as a problem uh, kind of changes what we can envision then collectively as a solution to it. Totally. And so these two things are really the, the end. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, the individual that acts, and on the other hand, very, if you want, uh, more general uh, macro um, boundary of the the horizon of possibilities, the, the possibility that you can envision because you have set up the problem in a certain way. So this is absolutely uh, central to any uh, ambition to achieve change. Maybe it's good for the listeners to, to use a concrete example now, because this is quite a theoretical, uh, it's becoming quite a theoretical discussion, uh, which is all our fault. But uh, something that uh, we work with urban neighborhoods, right, uh, in our work as Commons Network. And in Amsterdam, gentrification plays a large uh, role. It's a really big problem. And as Patricia said, it depends on who makes the analysis of what the problem is. Gentrification used to be good, first of all. Now it's a bad thing. But still, people don't really make the right analysis of why it's a bad thing. What I always do is, uh, when I speak to, for instance, civil servants, I tell them, are you aware that gentrification is also a, a racism problem? And most of them will respond like, what are you talking about? It's about houses. Who's talking about race? What are you talking about? Don't, don't be so radical. Don't be so weird. And I tell them, no, but if you have to understand why all the people in the, those houses that you, that you neglected for decades and now that you're tearing down, most of them are not white. And why all the people that are re replacing them, why are they all white? How can you not see that this is a racism problem? Okay, so that's an example of, of how you work on a problem analysis. It's a perfect example, and also it shows how economy is at the core of this kind of uh, emerging problems, or existing problems is a better phrase, I would say. And we, we kind of identify problems, and in response to these problems, with these kind of organizing reflexes. And coming towards the end of our podcast, I wonder... How do you envision a future? Actually, this is also what uh, Patricia was referring to. Of course, it depends on how you frame the problem, but we more or less discuss about the ecological uh, failure uh, caused by Anthropocene, Capitalocene, how you want to frame it. Uh, we also see um, economic inequalities. We also see racism. We also see a pandemic uh, as a result of our, kind of our actions and our expansion into the wild. Um, so we see multiple problems, uh, and of course, there are multiple ways of analyzing. But I wonder, in response to these problems, how you as an organization envision a, a sustainable Utrecht or a sustainable Amsterdam or sustainable world? I don't know how, how you frame it, but what is your envision and how you want to go there? Peter? Yeah, that's a very difficult yeah. question. Um, I can't get any further than what I, I said before is like you you you're being a good ancestor on the long term yeah. for the region. Yeah. Uh, and that means uh, uh, not only for the region, but for the planet in the end, 
if if you think it through. So, so so actually, that's what I can say. And yeah. because the situation at this moment for us as a humankind is is unique. So there are no answers. We have to find our answers. So that's going to take some time uh, to find out how we can act. So actually, we we have to learn to be more fluid and change more quickly. Quite uh, Aristotelian, let's say, a virtue kind of uh, ethical uh, drive I see here in terms of to be a good ancestor, to be a good ancestor for the future uh, generations, which is also at the core of sustainability, we can say. Utrecht can be a a fearless city for change. Uh, It can uh, embrace uh, community wealth building with with, uh, democratized local economies where uh, people care for each other, uh, don't work so hard, uh, embrace feminist uh, critical thought. This can all happen, and this is actually the low-hanging fruit. This is what's already out there. These practices are already being put into place uh, all over the world. All we have to do is uh, present them maybe to the people of the municipality and say, look, this is what you have to do. On the same time, that doesn't help us. I mean, that's only part of changing the world. Like, we can... We can revolutionize Utrecht, but we still have to show people outside of Utrecht uh, that that's only the beginning, uh, that we have to stop economic growth and that we have to vote out all the capitalists and the fascists. And there's elections in March. I don't know if you're about to close the podcast, but there's elections in March, the 16th, and everyone that's listening now needs to start preparing for that. That's actually a perfect reminder because we, we are usually closing our podcast as what should we do next? Assuming that uh, we have a, a new listener of this podcast series and also particularly this episode, uh, a newcomer to the city who is concerned about uh, sustainability, inequality, or all these kind of social issues, grant challenges, what would you suggest this uh, newcomer to the city or uh, audience? What, uh, what should they do? For me, uh, I would say I would advise them to A, uh, join existing movements such as the Wohn protest that's uh, now uh, organizing protests all over the country to uh, raise awareness for the, the, the housing crisis uh, or Extinction Rebellion who are of course known to your listeners those movements are not just uh, about protests but they're also about living and creating regenerative alternative practices and culture so join them uh, be volunteer in your neighborhood in a social center or community center do the dishes for a Saturday afternoon where there's a food bank or where there's a, a kitchen where they cook with food waste or whatever. That's the most important thing you can do because you will feel inspired and you will feel like there's more to change. And be, and see elections march. Vote for women, vote for people of color, vote out the capitalists and fascists. Ooh, go Thomas, go. <laughs> Great. Peter, what would you say? What would you suggest? I, I would suggest to think about what you can change within your own living environment after this podcast, after you push the stop button, then, then you can start something. And, and, and that can be a very small thing, but look around you and ask yourself, in which bubble do I live? Do I know the other people who live around me? And uh, do I really know them? Do I know what they think, what they need, what they, what they want to talk about? And... Actually, that's the, the simple beginning to, to, to be aware and of, of your surroundings and start there, very small. And Patricia, what would you suggest? Uh, 
Oh, that's a, a very <laughs> difficult question. I think at the individual level, like something that we all can do as individuals, independent of uh, who we are and, and where we stand and, and, you know, what we are engaged in is how does a problem that I today think it's my individual problem, how, how is that problem actually not only my problem? to try to go beyond this idea that we as individuals need to solve our own problems, which are individual problems. To look for ways uh, and for people that might share your problem so that you kind of reconnect yourself into the social fabric and realize that you know very often your individual problems are actually very collective problems. Because I think that uh, we get, you know, over-responsibilized to solve all this myriad of individual problems, to solve the planet, to solve inequalities even. So the cause is the right one, but I, I don't think that, you know, we can do it on our own. So this is something I would, you know, invite uh, everybody to do. I think if, he, if the uh, listener happens to be a scholar, I think the thing that we should ask ourselves is, you know, how can we reconnect what we do as scholars to the world even more? Uh, I'm sure many of us are doing it already today, but this is also a process, a struggle. How can we reconnect and keep reconnecting to our teaching, to our policy, you know, kind of policy advising roles uh, and our research, of course. Fantastic. I, I, I hear like uh, we all say organize, organize, organize and uh, get along with others as a collective uh, to deal with the challenges that we all encounter. And with this, uh, we come to the end of this uh, episode. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your contribution. And it was fantastic to hear all these different views, ideas that would uh, turn into probably new ideas in in our in, for our audience so thanks peter thanks thomas and thanks patricia and uh, at the background thanks bella uh, for uh, your help and for your contribution so uh, most likely this is our last episode as anders utrecht uh, episode series uh, but let's see what the future will uh, bring uh, to everyone listening, thank you for joining us and hopefully you have uh, learned something or gotten excited about something to, uh, to change something or to contribute to social change wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you.